This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today I'm very excited to have author of young adult World War II novel, Secrets in the Shadows, A German Perspective, Heige Boehm. Heige's writing is influenced by the stories of her parents who grew up in Nazi Germany and who at the end of the war found themselves in East Germany. They escaped with their first two children to West Berlin in 1961, where Heige was born in 64. She spent 10 years researching and writing Secrets in the Shadows. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Heige Boehm. Welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you for having me, John Carlo. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. So I'd like to start off, uh, as I do with all my guests, asking what is your story? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, my name is Heige Bohm, and uh, I was born in Germany in 1964. And I spent my first 10 years there, and that really influenced a big part of who I am and why I'm so interested in this story, uh, World War II. Both my mom and dad, they were children in the war. And uh, growing up, I come from a large family. I have five sisters. And there wasn't a lot of, um, we didn't get a lot of stories growing up. I had two storybooks. But what I did have was my mother's stories. She talked a lot about her life during, during the war. She was about six, five, six when the war ended, but she still has really vivid memories. And growing up, she would share those. And me having a very vivid memory, I always thought war was raging on at night because we lived near where they would move army tanks and they would rumble down the street at night. And because of my mom's war stories, I would take a look at them and see them rumbling and think, oh, war is happening. So for me, war was always ha- something that happened at night. And living in Germany, there was reminders all around me of, of the war. You know, we lived across the street from a war bunker. We, my oldest sisters, they were sort of at that age where they were learning about the Holocaust. And we had found a hiding place in the basement behind a cupboard. And there was furniture in there that looked like that was from around the the 40s. And my sisters, they told us younger girls that a Jewish family had hidden there. And so for me, you know, I, I was maybe five. And I always thought war was... I was wondering, you know, why, why were they living under my stairs, uh, people? Mm. Those kinds of things really stuck with me uh, growing, growing up. Then in 74, we immigrated to Canada. And I went to school. <laughs> and uh, right now what I do is I am a hairdresser. 
and have been doing that since I was 17. That's what I do for for my income. <laughs> you know, being a writer is is hard. Right. And Absolutely. so I do that in, in, in between uh, when my clients are uh, processing with their colors or any sort of technical. I go upstairs and I start writing. <laughs> really? So you, you let them, your, their hair soak and whatever, and then you go and work on your novel? That's right. And sometimes <laughs> I've forgotten them. Yeah. So that's, that's what I do. Um, and yeah, I spend pretty much all my free time writing as much as I, as I can. So now let me ask you, during our email correspondence, you, you mentioned something about like resolving personal shame and guilt about being German. And I just remember the phrase really stood out to me because it's not something I ever hear spoken of when I'm watching yeah. and reading things about the Holocaust and World War II. So I'd, I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah, it's um, it's so true. You don't really hear people talk much about that. And um, how it started really for me was not when I was living in Germany, obviously. It was when I came to Canada and I was nine, almost 10. And I started school and four of my sisters were, we were all at the same school. And during that time, they didn't really have, immigration in in the area that i lived in mm -hmm. that wasn't a big part of of it so we we were some of the first foreigners really at this elementary school and the kids the first few days of of school really um you know would call us jew killer nazi and i had directed at me and and because i knew some parts about the war that really sort of started me feeling bad about being german you know i'm a little i'm a little girl and all of a sudden i felt responsible for the tragedies that happened in the war and and you know what happened to my mom and that really carried on for quite a long time for me and just you know if i was walking and, and I'd be wearing a long coat or boots. People go, hey, you're marching like a Nazi. And people would actually think that was funny. And But what it did for me, it, it really um, lowered my self-esteem and, and made me feel bad about being German and not wanting to say, oh, I, I'm German or have any kind of pride in, in that. You know, I, I worked with a coworker. And every day she would say to me some sort of derogatory comments. And it was really her constantly day after day saying negative things to me hmm. that I started to go, wait a minute, this is not cool, you know. And and I was start I was able to sort of process what how I was feeling about about myself. And that gave me the courage to sort of finally stand up and say you know what that's not all right for you to say that and then I could start dealing with with how I was feeling about being being German and it was when I through some of my research that I was doing I was reading Hannah Arendt's work and and through some of her work she had said you know the responsibility um, lies with the government that's in power now to undo the wrong that the past government had done and that really helped me to to not feel responsible for that and um, through some of my research what I would do is I would interview my mom and I also realized she had carried a lot of this guilt and shame 
And through one of the interviews, she had said, you know, what could I have done? And mom and her family, they fled from the Russians. And so she saw a lot of dead people on the side of the roads, people mm -hmm. dying in the forests. And, and, and her saying that, I just went, wow, she's carrying a lot of guilt. And I had said to her, you know, mom, you were but a child when this happened. You don't have, that's not your responsibility. And a lot of times she would just talk about her stories with not emotions attached to trying to detach and um, when she had said that, and then I had had that conversation with her and said, you know, you really weren't responsible. It just hit it home for me as, as well as it did for her. And it was the first time she had heard that. And now to constantly, we, I have conversations and I ask her questions, more questions, more in depth. Um, I've gained a deeper understanding and compassion for my mom uh, and my father. And mom is able to shed some of that for herself as well, that responsibility and that guilt and, and shame, which is really nice to see, especially, you know, she's 83 now. So that, that feels really, really good. And it's hard to, to acknowledge and understand, you know, what guilt and shame really does to an individual mm -hmm. person for sure and how that erodes yourself you know of wanting to step out of your comfort zone to to shine you know to follow your passions or your dreams it can really shut you down on so many levels when you carry that or you know you might become angry or or deny what's going on you know whether it's dealing with reconciliation with first nations now or um you know racism period is is like really sort of owning how do we feel about you know what our ancestors what our governments has done to us as a collective as as a as a person as people you know um it, it's i think it's really important to look at how we feel about the wrongs of of our um ancestors you know and sure. not not to carry that that forward Mm -hmm. uh, like I, when I, I interviewed a few, um, one particular Ed Krauwinkel and he was a boy soldier. He was an SS and I interviewed him mm. and uh, he, he was 90 when I interviewed him. And during those interviews, what's interesting. And, and I also interviewed a few other, um, soldiers as well. They, um, they would tell me things that they wouldn't normally say to the average person. And what was what I thought was, you know, I I would listen to them because I wanted to get into their head where they were at. And there was so much denial that was going on for them. And I thought, you know, aren't they aware of what actually happened? Why are they still going on with the same old racism or or, or saying, you know, Hitler did do, did do some good things? It really sort of struck me. And I thought, you know, they had to continually believe the propaganda so that they could put their heads on on the pillow at night maybe or it, it was just really interesting that they still continue to this day and age denying aspects of of the war and and the holocaust hmm. yeah yeah I, f I found that quite fascinating to just to try and understand and all i could think of was 
you know, you know, when you've done wrong, you know, when something's right or wrong, your gut tells you. So it's like, how do you go forth in, in life? You know, do you, do you face it head on or do you avoid it? Mm-hmm. Deny it. Right. You know, of what things are. Now I wanted to back up a little bit. How old were you when you migrated from Germany? Um, I was nine, almost 10 in 1974. So I'm assuming German's your first language, right? Yes, German is my first language. Okay, so when they started calling you names, like you said, Jew killer and Nazi, it was because you didn't know the language. You came over speaking German, so immediately they knew you were German. Yeah, I, 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 had, I didn't speak any English. The only word that I knew was everybody. And I remember walking into my grade three class and I was really excited about being somewhere new. And I walked in and I said, hello, everybody. And right. the whole class laughed at me. <laughs> and I thought, why are they laughing at me? That's so mean. <laughs> you probably practiced it and everything, right? I, I did. I did for <laughs> weeks and weeks. And that was all that, that I knew. Oh, so it took me probably about two, three, two years to fully understand and uh, the the language to speak it, read it, and write it. So let me ask you: When you were in Germany, what was the talk of your history then? Like, was it? It must have been a culture shock to see like how other countries were perceiving you you know, as, as a nation that just wasn't present in Germany or. Well, I was a kid, so I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have really tuned into that. Not, mm-hmm. not until really I came here to Canada. Did I realize it like looking back at it? I always, I think, gee, how was I taught, you know, because my principal would have fought in the war. Uh, the, sh- the lady at the shop, she would have been in the war. And right. so, you know, how did they teach me? What was their, because they were also part of that machine, that propaganda machine. And I thought, what was that influence like? You know, did what did that do to me? It's kind of like saying, you know, here in Canada, you think everything is the way it was. And I actually, as a kid, thought everything would be exactly the same as it was, as it was at home in Germany. And, you know, growing up with hearing about North America, my view of of North America was from TV and you know we had Bonanza and so to me that's what I thought I was coming to I thought I I would get to ride horses and have First Nation as my friends and and so I I was really shocked and in in Germany you had um, houses built out of brick here they were out of wood and I I thought oh that's very strange (laughs) (laughs) right because it's my view is coming from a child's point of view. So what what was interesting to me would have been much different and the awareness of of an of an adult, you know, um, the my teachers didn't know what to do with me. For the first two years, pretty much she just had me write numbers mm. and copy words out of a book. And so I really uh, wasn't taught how how to write i could i could read and and i was good at math and all of that so in in 74 they really didn't have english as a second language right that they were teaching us you know so you i had a a friend and and she she was great help she spoke german so that was helpful she could explain things to me yeah i mean in in school they probably uh 
they just needed to occupy your time while you were there, basically, <laughs> right? Yeah, basically, that's that's pretty much what what they what they did, and and it's it's odd because when you don't speak the language, I I don't know what they're asking me to do, and you. And I remember speaking to kids, but I would speak to them in German and I was really confused of why aren't they answering me back? And they would just, you know, smile or, or, or walk away. And it was really confusing to me. And I thought, what is the matter with, with everyone? Why are they talking to me? Mm -hmm. And then when they did, they would swear at us and, and call us names. And I remember going to our principals uh, and saying, you know, th this is what they're calling us. And I had no idea what those words were, whether they were swear words or mm. any, any of that. Uh, that was interesting. But that, that really built, you know, being, being called names and, and being bullied like that, that was the beginning of feeling shame about my, my heritage. And did you say that you were also discriminated against as you got older at a, at a workplace? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, so, you know, I, I guess people think it's okay to, to joke about that and um, as, as an adult. And that's what um, one of my co-workers, I worked beside her almost on a daily uh, basis. She would have some sort of derogatory comment about me being, being German. And that went on for, quite a long time and I at first I didn't really know what what to do with that but it also made me understand it, it made me sort of look at myself of how that was making me feel and it gave me finally I had the courage for the first time to kind of say you know that's not okay for you to say those things and that was that was actually really quite healing for for me mm -hmm. because I allowed myself to have a voice and say actually that's not funny that's not a joke that that's actually hurting me you know mm -hmm. my, my my mental wellness or you know i i was at at a writer's uh brunch and there was an elderly woman who was part of the writers group and i had been saying yeah my my novel secrets in the shadows is is being um, published and she had made some sort of derogatory comment about oh so you are a Nazi and you know it really sort of pulled me back and I thought wow there it is again how do right. I respond to this so you come across these kinds of things and and you I'm constantly having to sort of look and, and go wow that that really hurts why why would you call me that are you actually aware of what a nazi is what some of those atrocities that that they committed you're actually saying that i'm that that i'm like that and that's really quite hurtful mm -hmm. and it's not okay you know it's not okay because if you took it any other way it wouldn't be okay it just isn't if, if you applied it to any other person it's not okay absolutely and i think you know it, it's interesting to have more discussions around that what we tolerate and what what we don't and what perpetuates that kind of belief system you know sure and just the fact that people just find it easier to filter other people through like one sweeping lens you know, by lumping somebody and identifying them with the most famous thing, whether it's good or bad, you know, about their country or origin or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And and it's, you know, 
I, I think it's great to have that discussion and, and talk uh, about it. And what was interesting, you know, I was just about to say something to her where um, a friend beside me, she, she actually said to her, you know, that's really inappropriate. And I thought I would actually like to add to it, but I'm in a function where I don't want to pull, make a scene, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just sort of smiled and, and let that, that go, which doesn't feel very good either. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned your book, Secrets in the Shadows. So without giving too much away, what is it basically about? Well, it's, um, it's about two best friends, Michael and Wolfie. And they are growing up during the Nazi regime. And they're really quite excited about becoming part of uh, hoping that the war will go on and that they too can fight in in the war for Hitler and they quite admire Hitler. But something happens very early on in, in the book where slowly their viewpoint of who Hitler is starts to change. And before they know it, they are on the battlefields fighting for Hitler, but against their moral values mm. as well. They joined the Waffen SS um, the 12th SS Panzer divisions, and that's uh, those are boy soldiers. And so I followed the battles that they engage in through through the novel and through their eyes. Wow, what what, what happens? Yeah, you know, I'm always impressed by people who even write historical fiction. So much goes into it. it did I? Read correctly, you spent 10 years of research on the book. What kind of research was involved? <laughs> yeah, writing and researching. So I start, I had written about half of the novel and then I came, I, I joined a writing group. And really what I had to do is I had to learn how to write English because I thought a lot of the book in German. And so I literally translated it hmm. when the boys were speaking in, into English and, um, and, and that really gives it an authenticity, the novel as well mm -hmm. for, for the characters. So I had to, Betty Keller, she took me one-on-one -on -one and really sort of taught me grammatical correctness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and because I'm working full time, it's really hard to, to write. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as I did, like I said, I would work in between, right in between customers. And the kind of research, you know, I would watch documentaries. I read um, a lot of books, uh, particularly the 12th SS uh, History of the Hitler Youth, Panzer Division, uh, written by Hubert Meyer, which was their commander. It's, That's right? a big book. Yeah. So there's like two of them. Mm. And when I first started reading them, you know, I'm not really versed in war language, uh, um, maps, weaponry. And so you kind of go down this rabbit hole and you just keep finding all these really fascinating things and you want to write about them, but you have, you have to understand that you're writing a story, you're not writing a history book. So you have to just really narrow it down. But I, I love doing research. And so my my whole room is filled with, with, with books. Um, it took me a really long time to figure out how to read 
the the maps particularly then they were they were really small and i just i i couldn't figure out who was going where what was going on um which was interesting and and just and i also collected people's stories it's amazing how many people actually have a connection to world war 2 mm And so I would listen to their stories and I would record them as well and then try to make the connection I really wanted to um talk to some soldiers and trying to connect myself to people who knew somebody and and have those interviews because I, because it really lends to the authenticity as well of their experience and especially Ed Crowwinkle I used some of his happenings in the story and they I spent 3 hours interviewing him mm and uh taking trips over to germany we took um, i think three three there and then interviewing my relatives going to some of the places like in in berlin which is amazing i don't know if you've ever been to berlin mm mm that was that was really great we um you know the all the historical sites it's it's really actually overwhelming seeing that yeah it's just you, you know i mean here like if you take a look at this map oh wow that is intricate yeah yeah so you know that's all that i'm i'm working with and and i'm having to learn you know what kind of bullets they use what kind of guns what kind of assault rifles what kind of airplanes and and also the time and the dates of the airplanes you know they had different different years they stopped making planes or used different ones mhm whether it was the british the americans uh it it was actually it was it was a lot and and um just trying to sort of understand how you maneuver through little villages one of the things that i did is i went to the dollar store and i bought a bunch of little army men and tanks and little planes and i set up on my dining room table a whole the a whole village and oh, yeah. it it was really fun actually it was like yeah my my sons do that all the time <laughs> yeah well i never really did that as a kid i played robin hood those kinds of things right? <laughs> and uh so i'm setting up the table and i called my husband and i i said okay graham you know you be the americans and i'm going to, or the canadians and i and i'll be the germans and and so because i had to understand you know what does this look like when they're going around the buildings those, those kinds of things and so we were we were playing war and him being male he just he took a took an orange and he just threw it on the table and he goes there i won <laughs> And I was like, "What was that?" Because it was a bomb. That was that easy. <laughs> so it was just, you know, those sorts of things that I I really had to sort of push myself of of what do things look like or or again I went to the dollar store and and I never held a gun and I don't know what it's like to crawl along the ground with with holding a, a rifle, you know? Mhm. <clears throat> and and so I go to the dollar store and I buy these two plastic machine guns. And, and I said okay Graham you be the bat you be you be the Canadian and I'll be the German and and let's play and so we were crawling around the floor holding these machine guns and shooting them so it was like those sorts of things was really really fun for for doing research that's mm-hmm. also research you know so so you can understand that and I didn't you know my gun was was for 
cowboy, like a pop gun, not not a, a rifle. You know, mm-hmm. and and also listening to the music of that time when you're writing. And I found a radio station that actually played um, German marching music. And so I would listen to that over and over to get into the mood of of that era, that time, and and to talk about the music because I, I wanted that in in the novel as well, symbols and, and mm-hmm. so that it's more tactile. I yeah, guess the whole vibe of the era. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was you know one night I was sitting there and uh, listening to it. it was about one o'clock in the morning and. Um, and I've got this music on and we had just come back from Germany and Graham's off at work and, and it's one o'clock in the morning and, and I was writing a scene for Michael and Wolfie and they're getting drunk at Wolfie's house. And so I thought, oh, you know what, I'm going to sit with them and, and drink as well. So I've got this marching music blaring. I pull out the schnapps that I had brought and we started drinking. And so for me, the characters were very much alive. Mm-hmm. And so we're sitting at the table. So they kept toasting uh, all the people that they had lost and the people that they loved. And at the at the very end, and then this went on for you know I was probably about writing for about an hour or two, and so I just kept drinking with them. And by the end, I was actually quite drunk. And so I went to go type, um, and here's to Hitler. But what I wrote was here's to Hitler, because I'm drunk. And I thought, oh my god, that is. That's just perfect. I have to keep that in there, you know? And <laughs> the next morning I thought, oh shit, my poor neighbors, they're probably like, what the hell is wrong with her? Right. <laughs> <laughs> those, those kinds of things are, I consider, they're all part of the research, you know? And mm-hmm. it's important when you're writing a novel to really feel and experience some of what your characters are. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. Now, was it all research first and data collecting before even crafting the story? Or did you kind of have the story and fill in the blanks with the research? And what was that process like? Oh, okay. So along over 12, 15 years ago, I joined an online writing group. And um, in that, I, I wrote poetry and I wrote a poem. And my father, he was murdered in 1983. I adored my my dad, and um, and so that really left me for a long, long time. Um, not not traumatized, but um, saddened. You know, I, I grieved mm-hmm. a lot from for my father, and um, so it was the first time that I wrote this poem about that grief process of not having my father and my and and the fact that my father was murdered it's a it's a very different thing when somebody gets murdered i find what you're left with as Mm -hmm. you know so so somebody in that online writing group had said i oh no sorry i i turned that that poem into a short story and somebody had said oh that would make a really interesting screenplay 
then a few years later, uh, there was a screen screen workshop, screenplay workshop being offered. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to try this. And so I took that story. And what I realized very quickly was I, when you write a screenplay, it's pretty much just dialogue. And I wanted to have more uh, control over, over the story. So that night I went home and I thought, you know what, this is not a screenplay. This is going to be a novel. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to tell dad's story. So I thought, you know what, start from the beginning. And I, um, I, I thought it, it sort of really actually dawned on me like, oh my God, dad was a child. He, he was born when Hitler came to power in 1933. So his, all his early years were really with a dictator, um, you know, and being indoctrinated in that kind of ideology. And it made me realize how that would have influenced him for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. And that sort of really pushed me to, to say, write it from a young person's perspective. And it, and it was a way for me to try to understand my father better because I didn't know his stories. I didn't understand him. Dad was a very complex man. You know, he was loving and caring and very caring about other people, but he was also a very violent man at home as well. Mm. And so I was, I was kind of, you know, it was just like, how can he be one way and another way? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really understand that. And so that really led me to explore Nazi Germany. And, and again, because I grew up in Germany with, you know, stories of, of there's a war bunker across the street from us, a kid, a, a young boy had died in that, you know, the incident with my family saying a Jewish family lived underneath our stairs. Those were all really confusing things. And, and along with my mom's war stories of fleeing from, from the Russians, which were really quite brutal, her memories and accounts of that really made me kind of go, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to write. And so it, both writing and researching, I kind of did that together. You know, at the same time, if I was stuck somewhere or didn't know as much as I needed to um, about the war, I, I would just start getting books. And once I finished writing my novel, it was really important for me to get it vetted. And I found a war historian named Roman Turpel. Mm. Uh, in in Munich, and so I sent him the the my my um, manuscript, and he went through it and corrected certain things because it was really important for me to make sure that what I was reading I understood correctly, especially uh, you know times and dates and maneuvers because it can get really confusing mm-hmm. um, because that's not my language. And that was really helpful to to work with the war historians. It, I think, you know, that gave me a lot of stress because I didn't want to upset people that I had gotten something wrong mm-hmm. in, in the novel. And also another war historian I worked with was David Boris. He's here in Canada. And he was really, really helpful. And I was really excited about meeting the war historians. I kind of have a fascination with war historians and I could spend hours talking war and battles with them, which I really enjoyed <laughs> as in my customers didn't. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so would you say your father then is ultimately the inspiration behind the book? Yes. Yeah, de- definitely. My, 
because of my dad, you know, trying to understand him and what his life might have been like for sure. But what I got out of it was, you know, I still have my mom and I would just keep re-interviewing her about her counts of, of war mm-hmm. that it made me sort of, you know, have a deeper understanding and way more compassion for my mother and understanding, you know, realizing that both my parents were traumatized, had post-traumatic stress mm. and understanding you know, how they raise us and how they behaved with each other gave me more compassion. And I was able to let go of, of some anger, maybe, you know, towards them because I could all of a sudden understand what happened to them. And it was great too. same with, you know, my sisters that read the book, they had a better insight to our parents as well and be able to understand them deeper with more compassion. Mm-hmm. So it was a really healing thing, you know, through, through that, I, I understood my mom better. I still don't know my dad's stories, mm-hmm. but I can, you know, surmise what might have, what his life might have been like. Sure. And what, what might have contributed to just inner angst and anger, you know, just growing up in that period mm-hmm. of time. And then- yeah. And also, you know, you're dealing with that time period too in the 60s and 70s and you you know how how women were 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 treated Mm -hmm. now i feel like there are new stories coming out all the time both fiction and real about the holocaust and nazi germany you know a couple years ago i read the boy in the striped pajamas uh this past year my family and i have been watching jojo rabbit i don't know if you've oh i love jojo rabbit oh my god (laughs) i loved it (laughs) Isn't it fantastic? It's such a it's great so movie. Great. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely you know, fabulous. Yeah, I love Jojo Rabbit. You know, and just using humor to kind of show the absurdity of the Nazi regime, but then it turns yeah. into this beautiful story by the end and, and you kind of really get the full picture. I mean, just brilliantly done, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, brilliant. But why do we never tire of the subject? I feel like we're constantly drawn to these stories. You know, what makes us want to learn more about this particular period in our history? Well, I, I think for, for, for myself is to try and understand the human uh, condition, trying to understand people, you know, how, how I, I'm always baffled with how can a, a nation, a country follow a dictator's um, wishes? How, do, how does an individual carry out such atrocities, you know, and, and, and yet you also have people who fight against it. And, and so it's, what is it in an individual and, and also as a collective that they can do good or, or bad? What drives that? What does it take for somebody to go against their moral compass? Because I believe we're all born caring and loving and, and we're untaught that by some. Mm. And people have that moral compass. They know what's, what's wrong and what's right. And yet they go against that. And what happens to them? Like the psychology behind an individual, I find for, for me, I find really, really fascinating. And, and how do you, you know, how does a dictator get into power? What, what does it take for that to happen? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I just find it, 
fascinating and also the beautiful part about you know the human spirit in that and the sacrifice that people will do for one another i find inspiring and and something to to live up to to, to challenge myself you know to be kind or more compassionate uh, not to jump on on a bandwagon um and is that really what it is? Is it like groupthink, you know, tribal thinking that kind of allows us to devolve into that type of mind state? Because obviously there's nothing different about people at that time. You know, people are the same for thousands of years. So there's yeah. obviously something that was exploited in the human psyche, you know, that could really happen to anybody given the right circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I I think so because like you know when I was writing the book and also when I was interviewing Ed, I thought you know just listen to what what he's saying and don't judge it because I don't know how I would respond if you know a group of people came walking down the street and started killing everybody on on my street. Mm-hmm. What what would I do? You know, is it? I don't really know how I would respond or how I would react. I would hope that I would have the courage to stand up against those kinds of people. They always talk about pack mentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, you know, fear is a, is a huge motivator for good or for bad in people. Mm-hmm. You can take a situation and people will respond, the same situation and people will respond and react differently to it why what is it you know are they so scared so fearful so confused i don't know you know um were they taught racism hatred does it make them feel better about themselves because really they don't feel good about themselves Mm -hmm. is it because they're not taking personal responsibility or accountability that you know that's too painful for them to look at their their self themselves um, so they're they're justifying or turning a blind eye uh, from from fear. I, I'm not sure, you know. Right. Do you see any political trends happening today that you consider to be eerily similar to Nazi Germany and and that time period? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, what what I see is you know the selling of uh, fascist ideology, the mm. selling of it. And, you know, that's done by, you know, Goebbels was a great propaganda minister. And, you know, he had said, tell a lie long enough and people will believe it. Mm. And, you know, in that time period, they really incited a lot of violence and they used uh, minorities to, they use them to blame uh, whether it was the political system or financial system. They used minorities to to blame that mm-hmm. it was their fault, and 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 I think too by giving false information over and over people start getting confused what's right and what's wrong. And and you see that happening. There's so much information out there uh, saying, no, it's this, no, it's that. And people are, they don't know what's right or what's wrong, what's correct. And so, yeah, I, I see that. And, you know, it's, um, 
Hitler knew how to take down a democratic way of living. Hmm. And yeah, I, you, you see that happening, you know, that wanting to stay in power because it's lining their, their own pockets. It's giving, you, you see that with, with, you know, politicians. So I, I would say, yeah, there's, there's a lot. And it's kind of scary when you start to sort of look at it through that lens, you know, that lens of, of how does a dictator come to power? How do they keep in power, you know, um, inciting violence and fear and all the isms? What do you think citizens can do? Just, you know, because we can't stop politicians from pushing whatever propaganda they want or but from the citizen standpoint what what's important for uh for people to kind of push back against falling into another uh holocaust at some point i i think is you know tr trying to understand people that are inciting violence mm -hmm. what is their motivator what is their fear having open dialogue uh, conversation um, caring for for your neighbors like you would your family. Right. Um, holding politicians accountable, getting out there and voting, not allowing your moral compass to run amok. Right. I, I think that's that's a, a big thing. You know, through that research and looking at it, you always look at the people that put their put themselves on the line and they helped. They helped the vulnerable. They mm -hmm. helped the people that were, you know, being um, persecuted. Yes, it reminds me, it's one of my favorite lines in Jojo Rabbit, right? When the mother always says, it, when the son asks and sees the people hanging, he goes, what did they do? She goes, uh, they did what they could. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's such a great line, you know, just people yeah. being responsible enough to do the right thing despite what's going on. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, through history, we admire those people. Mm -hmm. we, we don't admire the dictators. We don't admire the SS. We don't admire the people that cause violence. Those aren't the people that we admire. You know, we admire the, the, the people because we learn from that. We learn to, to have courage and not allow our neighbors to be harmed. Absolutely. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, before we start wrapping up. I wanted to briefly talk about your stint at the writer's studio at Simon Fraser University. Yeah. So what was your experience like and how important do you think it is for writers to get some kind of formal training? I really enjoyed being at Simon Fraser. It was an online nine month course. Mm. And what it did for me is it gave me confidence in what I knew. I had already been in a writer's group. And I think as, as a writer, I think it's really important to um, belong to some sort of good writer's group so you can bounce off your ideas and get honest feedback. And formal education, I think, you know, Betty Keller, my mentor, she always would say to me, you can't teach good storytelling, but what you can teach is the grammatical. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a big believer in education. I think education is really, really important. It gives you, you for me, it gave me a lot of um, confidence in, in, in myself. And also, it's a great way of networking. When you're a writer, it's, I think it's really important to network with other writers because you learn from each other. Mm -hmm. Writing is a very solitary thing. And when you can have conversations about writing with other writers and keep yourself motivated and inspired and encouraging one another, I think it really helps because there's so much to writing, so many negative voices that come into your head that it can, it can shut you down and you learn how to work through that. And for me in the writer's studio, that was really helpful. And it was helpful too, because you had people from different countries part, partake in it, which is great because you get, their perception, their points of views mm -hmm. uh, as well, as you also learn from them. And it, during, you know, being part of the writer's studio, you're critiquing each other's work and you learn from listening to other people's, um, not mistakes, but ways of, of writing better through, through the critiques. You That really impacts your own personal writing as, as well. I, I think it's important to get some kind of help education around around writing i i do it 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 really helped myself and particularly being in a writing group sort of like a iron sharpens iron type of thing yeah yeah mm -hmm. now any last takeaways you can offer anyone who wants to embark on writing historical fiction it seems like there's a lot to it i mean writing is hard as it is historical fiction seems like next level hard <laughs> you know, what would you yeah. say to someone who hasn't done it yet, but wants to? I'd say good for you, for sure. Um, and uh, res research your subject, like what you want to write about. I think it's Im important to get those facts right because it's historical fiction. You you can change things, obviously, because, because of the fiction, but... Um, I personally love researching and it helps me to have a background and a story for what's going on for my characters. Yeah. I just think research all different ways, you know, whether it's documentaries, going to those places, mm -hmm. reading historical um, works. Uh, that's pretty much all I, I read is um, historical books but also don't get lost in it, you know, because, because you're not, like I said, you're not writing a history book, you're writing a fictional story and you want to use things from, from the past, from history to put, to help push, push your story mm -hmm. forward for, for sure. And I, I just think, you know, I personally, I love going to bookstores or online and finding more books about what, about about the time period that you're writing in. I, I think it just gives the reader a better understanding of the time. And so often readers, that's how they learn about history as well through fiction. They're not necessarily going to pick up, you know, a book like this and go, oh my God, I love this. Right. <laughs> I, I'm one of those people that actually picks this up and I couldn't put it down. And I was so fascinated by it. But uh -huh. most people aren't going to do that you know, it's dry reading. And so through historical fiction, they learn about history. They learn about themselves. 
about a place or a time. And I just say, do as much research as you can and also try to get first accounts of, of, of a time period from, from people, interview people, mm-hmm. listen to their stories. Does that answer it? Absolutely. Yeah. No, it sounds, sounds very cool. I mean, obviously the research is about getting the world right, you know, like, so you're not going to put every little detail that you learn in there, but you want to make sure because it's the real world, you have the details correct. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, you can play a little bit here and there, like in mine, you know, I, I followed the timeline of the um, youth Panza division. I followed where they went, but I didn't just always want to write. And so I would get them, you know, lost or somehow get them off course. So then I could create my own kind of world within the historical world. Because mm-hmm. that, you know, but but I needed the backstory. I needed to understand. And that's sort of for you, for yourself when you're doing writing a historical fiction, read as much as you can so you understand yourself what it must have been like, that you actually feel you're there you know like I said I listened to the music I had um you know certain artifacts around me um I interviewed people not just for the stories but to to get a taste and a feel so that I could really permeate my my story with historical facts and that's kind of a fun thing is for me I love trying to find you know like I didn't know Mexico had joined the war. And so there was like these little historical facts that I found out that I didn't know about. And that that's kind of fun because then I'm educating the reader as well. Right. Very cool. Well, where can people follow you and even reach out if they wanted to, Haiga? You can get me at um, www.haigabohm.ca on my website. Or um, at um, author at hygabome.ca for my email. Awesome. I'll make sure I have those links in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast. I really enjoyed it, Haiga. So that was my conversation with Haiga Bohm. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.